Let's pray. God, thank you that you are perfect in all of your ways. Please speak to us this morning as a good, good Father does. We are children, are expectant, our hearts are open. Open your word to us. Thank you that you never fail us. You're here with us now. We're ready to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's great to see you again. And I want to start it off by uh, last week, it was so great to hear of all the different things that God is doing through you, through our missions, all the ways that we're impacting locally and nationally and globally. And something that's very close to my heart, as many of you will know, I work at Compassion. And so it was so encouraging to hear that there are over 130 children sponsored in this church alone. Amazing. And because I work for Compassion, I know that we're punching well above our weight. So you can all give yourselves a pat on the shoulder. And I just wanted to really thank you because I think sometimes when you're sponsoring a child, you don't always get to see the impact that you're having. But because I work at Compassion, I get to hear a lot of the stories. And even just last week, we were up in Newcastle for our staff summit and we had people from the field coming and telling us all that God is doing and amazing stories of whole families coming to faith through their child, generations of Islamic belief being broken. There was a beautiful story of a girl who um, was born with club feet and for years had dreamed of being able to run and play with her friends. And then she got sponsored by the, in the, got into the Compassion Program and it was another three years where she had to walk around with casts and chains on her legs. But there's this photo of her walking for the very first time into the Compassion Program and all the kids had created an archway like people do when they had when they get married and sent out and she's just running through this archway and I'm in the front seat at the front row at this Compassion Staff Summit sobbing my eyes out at this story. But these are the things that you don't always get to hear. So I just, all of you who do sponsor children, I just want to thank you so much for the sacrifice that you give. I know you don't always get to see what God is doing on the other side, but it is making a difference. So thank you to everyone in this church. So the title for today is that God has not forgotten you. And being forgotten is a horrible experience. I don't know if you've ever been that child who was waiting at school or after soccer practice and all the other kids are slowly getting picked up and it's getting darker and later and you're standing there wondering if mum and dad are going to turn up. You're watching the cars drive past, hoping that it might be your parents to pick you up. It's horrible to feel forgotten, or maybe you know what it's like to feel forgotten in the workplace or at school or university where you feel overlooked, where someone else was given the promotion or someone else was given the recognition and praise that you felt like you deserved. But the thing that's worse than being forgotten by a parent or a boss is the feeling that you've been forgotten by God that you look around you and you see everyone else going on with their life, achieving the things that they want to achieve, moving forward. But you feel like maybe you're just a little bit stagnant, that you're in the waiting zone. You're waiting for God to answer your prayer. You're waiting for Him to intervene. You're waiting for Him to to deliver you from the situation that you feel shackled by. It can be hard to think when we have been forgotten by God that maybe he doesn't care. 
He's looking after everyone else, but not us and our situation. And so so today I want to remind us that God has not forgotten us. And I want to look at one of my favourite apostles. I talk about him a lot from this platform, and it's the Apostle Paul. And the reason he's my favourite is because he describes himself as the chief of sinners. And if you've ever felt guilty about your past, or if you've ever wondered whether God can use you, then remember the Apostle Paul. Because this was the guy who was hunting down Christians across his city. He would find them and he would kill them. He approved of the stoning of Stephen. In fact, he was on the way to kill more Christians when he had an encounter with Jesus. And from that moment, everything changed. The man who had been trying to murder Christians was now encouraging people to become one. And Jesus on that day called Paul to tell everyone about him, to tell the Gentiles, the children of Jerusalem, the kings, the poor, the young, the old. He was called to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus. And so that's what Paul began to do. And Paul's conversion is written about in the book of Acts. And this was actually after Jesus had already gone up to heaven. But the very last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he went up to heaven was this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was making clear that just because he was going up to heaven doesn't mean that the work was done. But rather the disciples were continued to continue the work that he had begun. But Jesus wasn't just commissioning this group of his disciples to continue to the work without him. But rather, he said, someone is coming. I'm sending my Holy Spirit to work through you. Jesus wasn't sending them off alone, but rather Jesus was going to continue the work in them and through them. So the work would continue. So when Jesus went up to heaven, there was only 120 Christians on the earth. So it was the disciples' work, Jesus working through them, which was going to continue to see thousands of people hear about and believe in the name of Jesus. And at the beginning of Acts, it says that every day more were added to their number. God was working through the disciples to be witnesses to Jesus, to continue the work and drawing people to himself. That was their call. So the day of Pentecost comes and the disciples are at work. They're spread out and they're spreading the word of God. Paul himself is going from city to city and he's telling people the good news of Jesus. And fast forward and we get to Acts chapter 16. And after Paul had been travelling around in Acts 16 verse 7, it says, When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them there. I don't know if you've ever been driving along the M4 and then you go to turn off to the M7 and then the spirit of Jesus prevents you from going that way. Yeah, it's never happened to me either, but that's what happened to Paul. He had clear direction of where he was meant to go. It goes on. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So right at the beginning, Paul has a very clear call to go to Macedonia. 
He and Silas and Luke, who's writing the book, is with him at the moment. They've got a clear message from God. I want you to go to Macedonia. I want you to go and tell them about the good news of God. It goes on to say in Acts 16, 16, as they went to the place of prayer in Macedonia, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out the very hour. So Paul and Silas have only been in Macedonia for a few days and God is already at work. Here we can see that in the name of Jesus, Paul is casting out demons. He's healing this woman. There's miracles happening. God is clearly visible and at work. They can see this is why God has called us to Macedonia. He wants to work through us to free people, to bring miracles in his name. God's clearly at work. But, then there is a but. Next in the passage it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Things have changed very quickly for Paul and Silas. When it looks like God is at work, all of a sudden they've been thrown into prison, wrongly accused. I don't know if you've ever been wrongly accused, but I have a friend who is a pastor and when he had uh, consistently approached a man to ask him to stop doing inappropriate behaviour, he was making sexually inexplicit comments to women in the church, he finally asked that man to leave the church. But when that happened, the man then sued him for defamation in the Supreme Court and along with another elder within his church. It became this really long, drawn-out court case that was reported in the media. My friend's name was all throughout the papers and online being reported on as everything about their church was exposed. There wasn't anything negative in there, but it was a horrible experience for him to go through about whether he had defamed this man and whether he had conducted himself correctly. In the end, the judge cleared his name and the pastor went away without any charges. But it was a horrible thing not just to go through the process, but to be wrongly accused. And that's what's happened to Paul and Silas. It says that the magistrates themselves tore off their clothing. So there are Paul and Silas sitting in a jail cell. Their backs are bleeding their skin has been shredded by being beaten with rods repeatedly. They have got bruises and welts. 
They are sitting in the deepest part of the prison with their feet in stocks. It would be cold and damp, probably infested with rats. And they're in a city that is unfamiliar and far away from home with no one to call for help. They should have been wondering, where is God? Why did he call us to Macedonia? Why are we sitting here, stripped and beaten and attacked by strangers in an unfamiliar city? So how did Paul and Silas react? It says in the very next verse, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Picture it. They're bloodied backed, leaning against the cold, dark walls of the cell. They were shivering from the cold. They were in agony. They couldn't even shift their position to deal with the pain because their feet were in stocks. A lot of the commentators said they probably had broken ribs from the harsh beatings. And what were they doing? They were singing, singing hymns of praise to God. I was at a conference only two weeks ago and there was a pastor from America named Leonce Crump there. And he was saying that sometimes when we sing, we think that it's for God, that he needs to be reminded about how great and how good he is. But God doesn't have a low self-esteem. He doesn't need us to praise him so that he stops feeling insecure. Singing isn't to remind God of how great he is. It's to remind us. And that's what Paul and Silas were doing. I wonder who started the song first. Was it Paul or was it Silas? I wonder what they were singing. I wonder whether their voices were leading their hearts or whether their hearts were leading their voices. My grandma is a woman named Hilda and she's 96 years old and still going strong. And every day she prays for her seven grandchildren and 20 great-grandchildren. But she told me that she met uh, my grandpa, who has passed away now, when she was 18 and he was 19. They dated for a little while and fell in love and then got engaged. But only a few months after they were engaged, my grandpa got called off to war. And so they, and at that time, many of you in the front row will be shocked to know, they didn't have text messages or emails or WhatsApp or Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram or even FaceTime. The only way they could communicate to one another was by written letters. And so months would go past when my grandma wouldn't even know if my grandpa was dead or alive. And months would go past and my grandma would question whether he still felt the same way about her, whether he still cared about her, whether he loved her. She said there were many nights where she would cry herself to sleep, doubting that he was still holding himself out for her. She just hadn't heard from him. But before he left, he had written my grandma some letters and they had, he had said to her how much he cared about her, why he loved her, why he'd chosen her as the woman he wanted to spend the rest of her, his life with. And so my grandma said to me that when she had those moments of missing him so deeply and wondering whether he still cared about her, she would reread those letters over and over again. She would cherish those words and store up those words in her heart. And there are times in all of our lives where we will find ourselves below this line. And this line is where God is visible up here, 
but he's not visible down here. We can't see him at work. We can't feel him at work. We're sitting in our own jail cell wondering where God is, wondering if he's forgotten us. And that's when we need to go back to his truth. We need to go back to the letter, not just one letter, but the hundreds of letters that God has written to us that tell us who he is and how he cares about us. The Psalms that declare the majesty of his wonder and how much he treasures us so much more than the birds and the flowers. He will provide for us. He will clothe for us. He will give us everything that we need. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Those are the promises we have to go back to because when we are sitting down here, when God doesn't feel close, when he feels far away and distant and we don't know what he's doing, we can't rely on our feelings. We can't even rely on our own thoughts. We need to go back to the truth and the promises that's in the word. And the power of singing songs is that we aren't just reading his word, we're declaring them to ourselves. Because there will be times where we are so hurt and broken, so deep in the valley, that it's hard to believe what the word says. So in those moments, God calls us to sing, to let our voices remind our hearts of what's true, to sing out the truth until it starts to transform us and we can start to believe it. So that's what Paul and Silas were doing. They were singing hymns of praise to God. So what happens next? Well, it says in verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. So Paul and Silas have been called to go to Macedonia. They've been there only a few days and they've seen miracles and God at work. But then they've been stripped and beaten and thrown into jail. And now God has brought deliverance. And my question for you today is as you look at this continuum, as you look at this journey, where are you? Where are you? Are you sitting here knowing your call and ready for the journey ahead? Are you in a place where you can see God at work and his favour upon you? Have you been in a place here where you have now been delivered from where you were, but God has answered your prayer, who has brought you that deliverance? Or are you down here, below the line, wondering if God is still there, wondering if he did actually call you to where he's called you to be? Wondering if he still cares about you. And my word and reminder for you today is that even when you're down here, God has not forgotten about you. And deliverance is going to come. 
See, we don't know all the reasons that God doesn't intervene straight away. We don't know why he allows us to walk through the valley. Even for us as a community, we know what it's like to have been down here when it comes to the bushfires. We were, we were in a position where there were fires ravaging across our state and the RFS was telling us that the only way those fires could be defeated was not through man but only through rain from heaven above. That was the only way those mega fires were ever going to be put out. But they continued to go forward and houses and property and animals and tragically lives were lost. And so we got on our knees and we prayed. And God did bring deliverance. He did bring the rain. It rained and it rained and it rained and no one wanted to complain, but it rained. <laughs> and so many of us said, oh, why didn't the rain come back here? Why didn't this come earlier, God? And I don't know the reasons that God intervened when he did because only he knows how his timing is perfect. But I do know that it got us on our knees and I do know that it reminded us that God is God and we are not. And even when we think we're in control, we're not. And that we need him and that apart from him, we're nothing. And so we need to come before him all the time and ask for his help in our world. It brought us to our knees. And for Paul and Silas, they were called to be witnesses. They were called to bring the word of God to cities all across the world. And when they were sitting in that jail cell, they must have wondered, well, how am I meant to fulfill that call? I can't even move. My feet are in stocks and my back is bleeding and bruised. But what is the very first question that the jailer asked after God intervened? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, God could have stopped them from being beaten and attacked. He could have stopped them from being um, stripped and thrown into jail. But he didn't. He could have stopped them from being put right in the inner bowels of the jail and their feet put into stocks. He could have stopped them right at the beginning. He could have intervened, but he didn't. And I don't know all the reasons for that, but one of them must have been so that that jailer could be saved. Because if they'd never been thrown into that, jail, into that jail, then that man would have never known the goodness of God. And the Bible actually goes on to say that Paul and Silas spoke the word of God, not only to the jailer, but to all who were in his house. It says that he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptised at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his whole household that he had believed in God. The man who had chained the feet of Paul and Silas was now the one who was washing their wounds. And as he washed their wounds, he too was being washed of his own sin and shame as he was hearing about the good news of Jesus and his life was going to be changed forever. And for some of us, the reason that God will allow you to walk through this valley, which is hard and is tough, and I wish that it wasn't there sometimes, is for the one. Because we are all called to different spheres and you are all going to work and school and university and family with people who may have no other encounter with Jesus except through you. 
And sometimes our loudest microphone is in the midst of our deepest pain because people are watching when we walk through pain. And I love what Ben has declared over this year of influence because sometimes I think about influencers, people like Billy Graham and Reinhard Bonnke preaching to thousands of people and millions of people hearing about the Word of God. But often the most powerful influence is one by one. And I remember last year when Billy Graham passed away, I wholeheartedly supported all of the praise and honour that was given to him, that the way God amazingly worked through his lifetime. But it did remind me of, I had read Billy Graham's wife, who's called Ruth, Ruth, her biography a few years before. And at the time I posted this, and I just want to read it to you again. If you put it on the screen, whenever I was asked to name the finest Christian I ever met, said Billy Graham, I always replied, my wife, Ruth. Ruth Graham was a woman who often single-handedly raised their five children, all of whom are still involved in ministry. She wrote 13 books, led Sunday school, and could be found at her desk each night once the children were asleep, comparing different Bible passage translations and studying the Word of God. Ruth had to say goodbye to her husband and the father of her children for sometimes six months at a time, once again with no FaceTime, no text messages. And she knew that her calling, often standing at the kitchen sink, brought as much glory to God as Billy's, even as he preached to thousands, if not millions, of people. Even after her death, the sign that she had prepared still hung over their sink. Divine service will be conducted here three times daily. (laughs) They are now both reunited with their Lord. So wherever you are on this journey whether you're in the shackled, lonely place or whether you're in the unshackled, freedom-delivered place, God wants to use you. He wants to use the path that you have gone through. And if you've been delivered from a dark place, there is often people ahead of you who are going to walk through the journey that you had to walk through. And there is so much power for someone to be able to say to another person in a hard place, I understand, I know what you're going through and I want to walk through it with you. Jesus may allow us to walk through the valley, but he promises to walk with us. As we said before, he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And in his grace and wisdom, he brings other people along to walk with us as well. And they are the greatest blessing when they've gone there before and they said, I know that it looks dark right now. I know that it seems like God is not there, that he doesn't care, but I'm over here and you'll get there. Deliverance will come. And sometimes this happens quickly. One of my good friends who is in her late 30s, for years, I think I've shared this story before, but for years she had been praying and hoping for a a partner, for a husband, and he just never came. And then within 12 months she met, married and moved in with him (laughs) and her whole life was moved. So sometimes deliverance comes quickly, but sometimes it's slow. Sometimes there's healing, there's redemption, there's slow steps where we have to keep trusting God until he intervenes and delivers in our path. But through all of that, 
He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And he tells you today, I have not forgotten you. Just as I saw Paul and Silas as they were being beaten and attacked, I see you. I have not taken a nap and just missed what's happening in your life. I know. And I can't tell you all the reasons why I'm letting you go through that pain, but I'm with you and deliverance will come. When Paul and Silas were singing in the jail cell, it says that the prisoners were listening to them. And of course they were. Here were two innocent men, beaten and thrown into prison, singing hymns of praise to their God. As we said before, people are watching when we walk through pain. But it wasn't just Paul and Silas who God let walk through pain and suffering to see the salvation of someone else. It wasn't just Paul and Silas who were unjustly convicted of a crime they didn't do. It was also the Son of God. See, when Jesus walked on earth, he knew that he had one calling and it was to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. There was, but this time, there was no earthquake and no escape plan to get him off that cross. And the night before he died, Jesus cried out in agony. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And God didn't intervene. He didn't answer that prayer. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was silent. He didn't intervene. Because God knew that the only way that we could be reunited with him and for the just punishment of sins to be paid was for Jesus, the most innocent person, the only innocent person to die on a cross. The only way that we could be back in a right relationship with God without dying for our sins was for our sins to be bored by Jesus. So when Jesus cried out, God did not intervene. God did not answer his prayer. He let him be crucified on a cross. Why? For you and I, that we might have life and relationship with God. When people cried out to Jesus on the cross and said, You saved yourself, but you can't save, you saved others, but you can't save yourself, they were wrong. Jesus could have saved himself, God could have come in a moment. He could have brought an earthquake, a legion of angels. He could have got Jesus off that cross in an instant. But he let him die for us. So when your feelings and your emotions want to tell you that God has forgotten you, remember the price that he paid. Remember that he did that for you. And God forsook Jesus. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never have to be. God didn't rescue Jesus from that cross so that we could be rescued. But even for Jesus, God didn't intervene on the cross, but he did bring deliverance because we know that three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. 
in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the crowd, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was always in control. Even when we go through the valley, God is still in control. He's still the good, good Father. So if you're in that moment of waiting, if God doesn't seem visible to you right now, if it doesn't feel like he's at work, do not despair. Sing Deliverance is on the way. It's only a matter of time. And ultimately, deliverance, true deliverance, will come through death. Because Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So when we commit our lives to God, he will carry us through and ultimately, he holds a crown of life for us in heaven. That is our hope that is what that that's the ultimate deliverance that we have the ultimate hope that we're looking towards and as we spend these moments where god may seem far away let's sing let's sing in our jail cell let's sing even when we feel shackled let's sing even when we might feel beaten and bruised by financial stress or physical illness or relationships whatever is weighing you down let's sing let's say the devil that we have a louder voice than his that we have a god who conquers that we have a truth that we believe in because as we sing all we're doing is we're practicing for heaven when we'll be singing all day declaring the truth and goodness of our God and there are some of you where as you look at this journey you you can't even plot yourself on this continuum because you don't know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus who will walk through you with you in the highs and the lows we all know that being a Christian doesn't prevent you from going through the tough stuff it doesn't just keep you on the mountaintop you still need to walk through the valley but suddenly you have someone to walk alongside with you you have a helper you have a mediator and not just any old friend you have the Lord of the universe who is good and in control and mighty and powerful and who died on a cross for you So he is going to give you goodness and strength even as you walk through the valley with him. There are some of you today who haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus. You've been trying to do stuff your own way, just like those fires have been trying to fight it by yourself. But God is saying, you need me. And the only path to true joy and contentment and fulfilment is through me. I'm the only one who's going to satisfy your soul. So we never want to miss an opportunity to invite you to start a relationship with Jesus. So if you haven't done that, or perhaps it feels so far off that you can't remember what it's like to be in relationship with Him. You can't remember what it's like to come back to His truth and to read His Word and know who He is, to feel what it's like to have Him working in your life. Well then, if you want to know what it is to trust in Jesus, then my response to you is the same as what Paul and Silas said to the jailer. They said, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It's that simple. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And the crown of life will be waiting for you at the end. 
So let me pray and let's repeat this prayer after me as we all recommit our lives to this good God together. So please repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you never forget us. Thank you that you died for us. Lord God, today I invite you into my heart. I ask that you change me from the inside out. I want to believe in you and follow you. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.